Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for January 20th, 2020, episode 15. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. But Evan, what are we here to do today? We are here, as every day, to discuss different topics that you may hear about in the news or some you may not be aware of. We're always going to hope to give you our unvarnished opinion as long as those opinions are adequately informed. Yeah, we try to at least know enough about what we're talking about. Who's to say what is enough? I guess us. But we uh, we know we are don't know everything. We are probably going to be wrong. How much are we going to be wrong on this episode, Evan? Um, at least thirty percent minimum. Yeah. And you know, as time goes on, that percentage goes up. So, um, yeah, we are not on the ivory tower. We do not know all, and our viewpoint is not the only one that is logical or acceptable. So, anyway, Evan. Yes, Joe. What would you like to talk about today? Well, Joe, today I want to talk about a book that I read this past week, a book called Bullshit Jobs. Bullshit. Yeah. David Graeber is an anthropologist who works at the London School of Economics, and he is calling bullshit on the way that we think about work in the modern economy. Now, I got to ask before we go much further, is this along the lines of the putting swear words in book titles to get people to buy them? Like that book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and then other people just started putting the word fuck in their titles and they were at bookstores. I don't know the other ones, but... Well, possibly, but his central theory is the idea of a bullshit job. So he references this specific phrase and this concept throughout the book. So maybe it's attention-grabbing, but it also uh, appears throughout the book. Now, should the book have been called... Bullshit jobs for realists. <laughs> yes. All right. I'll let you go on your spiel. All right. So David Graeber is theorizing about what he sees as a big problem within the modern economy, and that is bullshit jobs. So you might at this point be asking, what are bullshit jobs? Well, thankfully, he does tell us. In Graeber's own words, a bullshit job is a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though, as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obligated to pretend that this is not the case. Essentially, a bullshit job is not a job necessarily that people don't like doing or that's hard, but a bullshit job is a job that contributes nothing of value to broad society or even hurts society. And the way that you determine a bullshit job largely comes to talking to the people who work in that job. Essentially, the benchmark for determining whether a job is bullshit or not is if a preponderance of people within that profession agree that they are really not aiding anything or creating any value within society, it's safe to call it a bullshit job. So as we go through this discussion, I'm not trying to put down any of you or anyone in the world who feels like their job 
has value because if you can see the value in your work and you feel good about going into work every day, then congratulations, you don't have a bullshit job. But there are a lot of people who recognize that their own work doesn't seem to mean anything. David Graeber lists five different types of bullshit jobs that he has identified. The first type is the flunky, and a flunky's job is purely to make someone else feel more important. And one example of this that I just found absolutely ridiculous, but this is true, is certain stockbrokers on Wall Street will employ someone as a cold caller. And what a cold caller does is make sales calls for the broker that the broker is completely capable of making, and the broker gets the commission, they do all the legwork, but the cold caller is employed just to make the broker seem more important by having someone who works for them to make the call. They want to give the appearance that they're too busy to make the call, even though they're sitting right next to the cold caller while they're making this call. So this is any type of unnecessary underling could be considered a flunky job. Mm-hmm. The second, yeah, the second type of bullshit job is a goon. And this is someone who uses metaphorical or literal muscle to benefit employees or the company at someone else's expense. Someone who can sort of through aggression or grift, essentially work a way to get someone's money from someone else. And a big example of goons are telemarketers, people who call often elderly or otherwise uh, infirm individuals and attempt to cajole them into buying things that they know they don't need. That's a goon, someone who is really only servicing their direct employer at the direct harm of another person. Or like those people who, uh, those companies that like buy up debt that has basically been declared that it can't be collected upon and they buy that debt real cheap and then they're entitled to legally entitled to that full amount. So they just harass people for that money. Yeah, that's a great example of a goon, someone who is just trying to, through perhaps intimidation, collect or otherwise acquire money through less than savory means. That's a goon. The third type. uh, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Those Salvation Army (laughs) uh, (laughs) bell ringers, those are goons. You know, they and another thing to remember is that there are these five types of job of bullshit jobs, but they often overlap. And I could see that type of job as a goon job or even as like a flunky type job, like to make make it seem like there's a human face, even though you can just as easily throw your money in the kettle, you know, but it's just done to make the institution seem more important. Um, Of course, the bell ranking is uniquely annoying and. Probably there's definitely a good case to be made that there are goon like elements to that job. Yeah. The third type of bullshit job is a duct taper and duct tapers are people who solve problems that only result from the laziness of their superiors. And we see this a lot within the tech field. Essentially, there are 
most of the core technologies nowadays are open sourced. And so they're made for free by people on the internet. But the downside is that they're often not compatible with other proprietary softwares that companies try to use. So a duct taper's job is not to actually invent new softwares or innovate within that field, but just to apply patches and make sure that the proprietary software works with the open source software. I mean, I could see that as not being too bad. I mean, someone's got to do it, but uh, you know, if those people feel like it's completely void of meaning, then I guess that's that's their take. Yeah, and especially because within and this is he draws heavily on a lot of first person narratives to make these cases and really the the tech industry is getting into sort of this death spiral where the most of the jobs that you will pay be paid to do are duct taping jobs and so that's what these coders have to do to pay the bills but it's not fulfilling so then they spend their free time working on the bigger open source projects but then since they're doing that for free Nobody is hiring them to do it because all of those programs are available for free. And it creates this worse and worse spiral whereby coders are still doing work that they enjoy, but the paid work they're describing as really soul crushing. Hmm. Who would have known? Yeah, Graber, that's fourth it. category. Box tickers. A box ticker is someone who exists in an institution only to allow the organization to claim that it's doing something it's not. They're someone who ticks some sort of box. And an example of this would be a compliance officer. Not all compliance officers, especially if they're they're really doing – if they have some sort of accountability or someone that they're trying to report to – but oftentimes an organization will say, okay, well, we have to, we need to be in compliance on diversity. We need to have a committee on diversity. So then they hire someone to do a report on diversity and they write the report and give the presentation and then it goes nowhere. No institutional changes are made and nothing comes of it, but it allows the university to tick that box and say, hey, we're in compliance. We put together a special report on diversity. And a lot of times box, box tickers jobs wouldn't be meaningless. They wouldn't qualify as bullshit jobs other than for the fact that their higher ups never read their findings and never intend to act on the reports. This almost seems to me like if there could be a classic case of bullshit job, then this seems, I mean, at least of the four we've listened to so far, this would be classic bullshit job or what people conjure up in their mind. Uh, People, you know, thinking of that one guy in the company or somebody in a government whose job really is to do nothing. You know, they don't have a whole lot to do. If they do have work, it's very little and nobody ever sees them doing much work anyway. Um. So some people that, you know, seems like a great deal, but other, you know, it could seem very bullshitty and unfulfilling, especially if you're made to do a whole bunch of work that nobody takes seriously. Yeah. And we'll get into this a little bit later, sort of the harms of bullshit jobs. But that's 
that's the ultimate thing is that you would expect if someone was in a position where they were paid to essentially do nothing all day, that it would be awesome. They wouldn't have to work very hard. They could collect their paycheck and in some cases even work on their own projects during working hours. But what Graeber has found is that very rarely do people feel good in these bullshit jobs because by and large, people want to do something meaningful with their working hours. The fifth category of bullshit jobs and the final one that uh, Graeber has been able to identify as a constantly recurring theme is that of a taskmaster. This is someone whose sole purpose is assigning or creating work to others with no real authority of their own. This is where we talk about the bloat of middle management. If someone's only job is to motivate their team that's probably a bullshit job if they don't have any outside authority. Or a lot of times within academic settings, there'll be all of these administrative type jobs, a million billion deans that don't actually have any budgetary control, but still occupy an office space and are given some nominal tasks to do and have a staff under them that they have to direct. Those types of taskmaster jobs would be bullshit jobs. I want to be the Dean of Sidewalk Corners. All right. I've appointed you Dean of Sidewalk Corners in Adequately Informed University. Fuck yeah. You don't think about them, but they're very important. Are they going to have a ramp? Is it just going to be a curb? Is it going to have those little tread things on it so that you can get some grip when it's icy out? Ooh, I got more power than you think. Well, I have no power because I'm the vice provost. Oh, man. Man. So give us some (laughs) thesis. All right. So I want to look into why bullshit jobs appear to be proliferating, because that's that's one of the arguments that he makes is that we're seeing a rise in bullshit jobs and. Part of it has to do with the rise of managerialism. It's a workplace philosophy which stipulates that you want to try to leave as little freedom in the hands of the workers as possible. I guess it relies on the idea that workers won't work hard if they're not incessantly supervised. And so this often creates more administrative positions and resultant bullshit jobs because of it. And there's also this idea that automation has reduced the amount of what we would call real work that needs to be done. But we as a society have not decided that we want to accommodate that into our working schedules. And so the only solution to maintain the level of jobs that we need to produce a functioning society is to create bullshit out of nothing. Work is sort of societally constructed to something that you have to do. And also another idea about work that I think we have in this society is that it, it really can't be something you enjoy all too much. Work has to be hard and it has to be a slog. Otherwise, it's not work, it's play. And that seems to be 
what has predominated this managerial thinking. And instead of enjoying the fruits of automation, perhaps with a shorter work week or otherwise not believing that everyone needs to work to survive, we end up in a position where the free market creates the bullshit jobs that we are afraid a totalitarian state would create to guarantee full employment. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I did want to make one note. Um, you did say something about like managerialism taking, you know, the control out of the workers and because there is a belief that they may not do the right thing or something or be most productive or something like that. Sure. And so I, my job is I am a manager and there is definite, there is like a two way street that can be encapsulated in this. So a lot of workers, well, I mean, uh, at least from what I see, there are a fair amount of workers who don't do their jobs perfectly right or the most efficiently or in a way that they really should be done, but they get done regardless. And there's kind of a dichotomy. You can either be overly attentive, you know, put huge guardrails on things and try, you know, tell them that there's only one way to do this. And, you know, if you don't do it that way, it's whatever, you know, kind of described from your take on bullshit jobs. But then there's also what is seems to be concluding to the harms of bullshit jobs, which is a lack of meaning, uh, feeling like there's somebody already always breathing down your neck and that, uh, you know, creates dissatisfaction with the work. So there is a two way street there. <laughs> you can be more attentive to worker predict productivity and what they are doing and how they are doing it. But that also sometimes comes at the cost of worker satisfaction and creates turnover. So it's, you know, however these businesses decide to go about it. Yeah. And I've found that often by attempting to worship at the altar of productivity and micromanage productivity, you often end up undermining those goals of productivity. And it depends worker to worker, like Joe was saying. Some people, probably need a greater push to really do what they're supposed to be doing. But other people work really well with more freedom. I know in times where I've worked, say, retail, I was – when I had a supervisor present, I was more nervous about making a mistake and I tended to go more slowly and I was just generally more on edge versus working at the store alone and knowing that I had the freedom to fix my own mistakes and to avoid that judgment. I felt like I was actually a more productive worker when there wasn't somebody there trying to make sure that I was being productive. Yeah, it's uh, again, it's a two way street a lot of the times. Yeah. You know, I think of places like McDonald's and, you know, fast food restaurants, they have metrics on every little thing or Amazon. They're trying to eke every little bit of product productivity out of it. And it's, uh, you know, that's pretty soul crushing. You know, Amazon and McDonald's, I'm pretty sure they have pretty high turnover for mm -hmm. their employees because it's kind of soul crushing work. But then 
you get into the world, it's kind of like a self uh, or a, a death spiral where you try to enhance the productivity of workers and that increases turnover, which means you have more new people in there, which means that it takes more managerial muscle to create, get them to do what they need to do. So you create more metrics, more automated systems and all this kind of stuff to get, make sure that all the new people who are less experienced are able to perform at the same level the old people were able to do without the assistance. And it, it, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> exactly. And in the process, you know, say that you are having trouble with retention, you might have to create a position of a retention specialist, which probably is a bullshit job in and of itself. If you could just fix the underlying problems, you wouldn't have to spend an entire other salary on another middle manager who doesn't directly contribute to production yep it's it's about playing those numbers games and you know a lot of stuff in the short term so that's how a lot of those things get it's like slapping a band-aid on something yeah and i also want to talk about the consequences of bullshit jobs because it's one thing to say hey this is kind of a quirky thing that's going on but if we are to believe that a significant portion of the U.S. workforce believe that they have a bullshit job, we have to understand if that's having negative consequences. And Graeber believes that it is. And he describes being forced to work in a bullshit job as an act of spiritual violence. We as humans want to be able to impact our world. From the time that we are babies, when we realize that if we move our arm, we can move something else in our environment. This has been been done in, in psychological studies of young childhood development. This creates such a joy for the child. They don't have to be attempting to accomplish any goal, but simply understanding that you can affect your environment, that you have an impact, is one of the core ways that we build a sense of self and a sense of identity. And bullshit jobs take that very base thing away from us. If we feel that our work doesn't have value, that if what we're doing doesn't benefit society or it actively hurts society, what are we doing? What what way can we evaluate ourselves, especially in a culture that so often ties our self-worth to our ability to work and our ability to make money? Feeling like you're not making a difference in the world kind of makes you feel like you stop existing to a degree. And Another point that Graeber makes is that in this growing era of polarization, it's entirely possible that bullshit jobs contribute to this class resentment because people with bullshit jobs resent people who have quote unquote real jobs, you know, often people who are of a lower social status. Because that's the other thing about these bullshit jobs is that you can be compensated quite well just to be a box ticker or a duct taper and not really have any sense of legitimate value. But doing a job that has a tangible benefit, like being an early childhood educator 
or a, a garbage collector, something where there's a clear social value often is compensated less. But still, those with bullshit jobs resent people with the real jobs because they at least get to make a difference. Meanwhile, the resentment goes the other way. The people who are doing really hard and socially valuable work but not receiving a lot of compensation for it resent the people who are taking home a nice paycheck but aren't really doing a whole lot of anything. And of course, everyone in this system just ends up hating the unemployed and the poor even more for this reason. And so in a world where we're forced to work even if the job doesn't have any social value, it is toxic to us as individuals and it's toxic to our social relationships. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I mean, on your point that these jobs can be well-paid, a lot of times these jobs are well-paid is because they're soul sucking. They're, you know, somebody, the company or organization or whatever has decided that this job needs to be done, even if it's bullshit. And they probably have a real hard time keeping people around to do it or, you know, somebody to, you know, put up with it. So they are well compensated because it is a bullshit job. They uh, because there is nothing else keeping that person there other than the paycheck. So Mm -hmm. now now is there a, you know, with all this, you know, how shitty it is, how it can affect people's lives, all that. Is there a what do we do about this part? There is a what do we do about this part. There's two big solutions that are both policy and ideology oriented. And number one is to embrace the role that automation has played in making our lives easier instead of trying to fight it. And the way we do that is by reducing the work week. I think we sometimes take a 40-hour work week for granted, but that was negotiated and fought for and constructed by the labor movement. And it was a big improvement at the time, and also it seemed about fair with how much work needed to be done. But if nowadays we decided there's really no reason for anyone to work 40 hours in a week. Maybe we say 20 hours should be a full-time work week. Maybe 15 hours should be. And how you accomplish that is by eliminating both the bullshit jobs and the increasingly bullshitized elements of even productive jobs. You know, nurses filing paperwork, teachers going to 14 team meetings in a week instead of actually teaching their students, writing reports on how you're going to improve efficiency instead of just taking the time to implement new strategies. And it's entirely possible that if there's just not as many jobs that need to be done, we can spend more time we can devote more human resources to the select fields that do still require human work and just have everyone work fewer hours to accomplish the same productivity outputs. So the argument is that by making the work week shorter, then they would need more people to do the work that needs to be done or accelerate the 
uh, coming of additional automate uh, or automization autoize word then <laughs> um and that would eliminate bullshit jobs yeah the idea that if we said nurses and teachers and garbage collectors only have to work 20 hours a week now we have essentially double the amount we, we would have double the job space for teachers and nurses and garbage collectors so people wouldn't be forced to accept a bullshit job just to have some form of employment the other thing is that it could go the other way and say okay well we only have 20 hours a week so we can't really expect our teachers to spend their time going to meetings and writing reports, those 20 hours will be dedicated solely to teaching. Now, how many average uh, hours does a person work per week in the U.S.? Do, do you have the answer to that? Am I, is this a trap? So, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American works 44 hours per week, or 8.8 .8 per day. So, through the economic literature... Um, well, not even literature, just kind of the trend of, of working hours per week in the U S and other countries. If you were to look at a graph of the average amount of work hours, the American an American works. And if you were to ask someone where the imposition of the 40 hour work week happened, you would not be able to spot that in the graph. So I am, and, you know, hours per week or hours worked overall have kind of been going down for, I don't know, something like 60 or 70 years. It's little by little, but it doesn't seem like actually making rules about how many hours you, you know, count as a full-time job before overtime is paid have a real effect on the amount of hours worked, but this may be a separate conversation. Yeah, I think there's merit to that. And there's certainly, if we say that there's a 20 hour work week or a 15 hour work week, of course, some people are still going to work overtime, but certain jobs would be forced to increase their hiring quotas to accommodate the politically lowered work week. And therefore would at the very least redirect our working hours away from bullshit, even if they don't necessarily have a dramatic impact of reduction on the hours worked. It'll make the hours worked more impactful, hopefully. I think, you know, if there was a mandate of, you know, uh, you know, how long a working week is where it was decreased, I think all you would get is more more people working part-time at Walmart or something along that line or more people being salaried. Like I'm all for a, uh, you know, a work week that had, you know, is fewer hours, but I don't know if using the strong arm of the government to do that is necessarily the case. But again, I, I am not fully up to date on that, but that's just kind of me spitballing. Well, it's certainly a utopian suggestion, and I'm not saying that the implementation would be smooth, but I do think that 
if we're talking about what what could you theoretically do to reduce the bullshitization of jobs? I think that's one way that we can start to do it. And the other way to do it is to reshape our society so that our work is independent from our ability to live. And you do this through a universal basic income. If everybody has enough money and resources to survive, there will be no reason for anyone to stay in a job that they truly feel does not have value. It's that simple. Yeah. You know, I, man, when are we going to have the basic income podcast? Man, every, every one of them is the basic income podcast with me these days. Yeah. I go back and forth on it. But anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's tough I, to imagine. It's, it, it is kind of tough to imagine a society where you don't have to work for a living, but that's sort of my value is that everyone should be able to live regardless of any other structures imposed upon them. And I think that what you'll find is that people still will want to work. They'll just do work that's more meaningful to them. And sure, this will create, you know, more bad podcasters and more people who think they can play the guitar and they can't. Please but, rate us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> but if in the status quo, a system where people are forced to work as conditions of their survival is already producing a lot of jobs with no social value, the the trade-off of moving from people who have to be cold callers and duct tapers to those same people still not contributing anything, but now at least doing something they enjoy, it doesn't seem like that bad of a trade-off to me. Yeah, you know, it it I you know, I want people to be able to live their lives, not not condition on whether they are able to work or not. But you know, these types of books, I you know, I like the idea that they present. It's interesting. Bullshit ideas, how they drain, you know, people's lives and all that kind of stuff. But then when it gets to the kind of what do we do about it part, I almost feel like that should be kind of left out. Like I feel like more books should be uh be able to just kind of be like, hey, here's a problem. What do you guys think about it? Instead of I have the solution here to give it to you because bullshit jobs suck. Having a shitty job sucks. Having a job that you don't like sucks. Um, and for some people, it's a little bit more than just it sucking. You know, they have to keep doing the job or whatever um, because they have no other way to get that amount of income. But I see the best way that this book or, you know, best case scenario of eliminating bullshit jobs is having some people who are in charge of employment and have some real sway within these companies and organizations read this book and be persuaded that, hey, these bullshit jobs suck. We need to get rid of them. And if we want to keep retention, then maybe we should not be making people do these soul crushing jobs to be entirely fair to be entirely fair to the author, David Graeber, he agrees with you. He spends 
over 90% of the book exploring the phenomenon and the causes and the effects. It's only at the end where he basically says, you know, I don't really want to offer a solution, but if I have to offer a solution, probably UBI would help. Okay. I, I like that. I like that because then we, you know, we get so wrapped up that, you know, maybe the government, you know, I, you know, I'm liberal. I tend to think that, the government has the capacity to have a better effect in somebody's life, but not every social problem, social and individual problem can be solved by a state solution. Just sometimes just it being out there. This is kind of the idea of journalism. Like I'm Geraldo Rivera and I'm going to go to an institution where a bunch of mentally ill people, you know, shit themselves and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to propose a solution. I'm just going to expose people to it. Um, so it's good to be exposed to problems, but I'm, you know, I'm sometimes wary of that. What do we do about it part? Well, so is Graber. But I think that, again, without concerns for implementation, it, it really does involve reshaping our world and what we want it to look like. That's that's kind of where I fall on it at the end of the day. If you have a bullshit job, hopefully you don't do it for too long or have to do it for too long. Yeah. 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 So, Joe. Yes, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, Evan, you know me. I do. All right. That's the podcast, everybody. Um... So this past week, I watched a video on YouTube. I know you all can't believe it. It's like all I ever watch. And this video was titled, You Couldn't Make Blazing Saddles Today, in quotation marks, by the channel Infranaut. And this caught my eye. It had been kind of floating in my recommended videos for a couple days, and I finally decided to click on it. I was a little hesitant at first because I try, yeah, I try to stay away from the uh, commentary pieces on X movie or whatever. And if especially if they have low views, then normally the commentary is kind of half baked. But this one was an exception. And this this uh, this creator, Infranaut, he takes to task this argument that has kind of floated out there that people make that you could not make blazing saddles today which blazing saddles if you don't know is a movie by mel brooks released in 1974 it is a parody of western film american western films and the uh, the video creator you know he his proposition is that you shouldn't really be asking or, you know, saying you couldn't make blazing saddles today, but more that you wouldn't make blazing saddles today. And I like this a lot because with comedy and a lot of, you know, pieces of media, you know, people will go, Oh, you couldn't make that today. You know, it's great, but you couldn't make it today because everybody's too politically correct. And, you know, some teenagers are upset about injustice somewhere and then you can't, you know, say swear words or something like that. And 
So this film was pretty controversial, at least when it was made, because it was satirizing American Westerns, which before Blazing Saddles came out through the 40s, 50s, 60s, they were like they were like what superhero movies are today, but like times 10. If you look at a graph, uh, I once saw a graph that was like a chart of, you know, what percentage of genre of American movies each year. And, you know, Evan, I'm sure you've seen something like this, but Westerns used to just be so dominant. Oh, yeah, absolutely inescapable within American media, more so than anything we've seen in the modern landscape. And... They were so popular that even the tropes of all those shows live on in the American culture, even without watching a single Western from that era. It just astonishes me that um, how much it comes through. So and all these Westerns were made in the 40s, 50s and 60s when there were these codes about what could and could not be in film and television. One was the Hayes Code for film that stipulated that there couldn't be sympathetic villains, you know, which is like the cornerstone of the 20 teens, uh, you know, film universe. Um, or that <laughs> I, I thought this one was funny that, they couldn't show beds that could accommodate more than one person because if two people can get in there, Ooh, they may capitulate. (laughs) And then there was also a, uh, you know, set of TV codes that came out in the fifties that alcohol had to be, you know, consumption of alcohol had to be directly related to the story. Law enforcement must be shown favorably and good. And there couldn't be anything shocking to the viewer because this was the early days of television. And it was there was this fear that anybody at any at any time, a child could flip on to that channel and watch that show. And they didn't want anything that could be seen as inappropriate for a child to see. Now, this led to a, a an absolute whitewashing of Western history in the United States. In the 1958, there were 50 Western TV shows on, and there were like five channels. And they all had to play to these wholesome ideas that... You know, if we were to think about it just for a little bit as Americans, they're all kind of baked in that the cowboy is this great rude tootin'. He's a good fellow. He does the, you know, good by the by the people of the West. They are courageous. They fight the evil man who is in each episode, a singular person and a bad egg. And it just yeah, makes no no systems put on trial. Anyone who does anything bad is is one rogue bad guy operating yeah. outside of the system. Yeah. So this just completely changed how people saw the West and American history and all that kind of stuff, which is like a separate conversation. 
but and the the creator of the video dubbed this the wholesome west where there wasn't prostitution there wasn't racism there weren't even you know black or latino cowboys which in the real american west there were many um a good portion of them were because being a cowboy was just kind of watching over cows like it wasn't shooting it wasn't getting into gunfights you know there were outlaws but being an actual cowboy was riding a horse and watching over cattles over thousands of acres but anyway blazing saddles was made to respond to that it parodied that type of movie it showed a you know it parodied the good nature that is shown on these old westerns that oh you know the the white man the white cowboy they are just so pure and great when you know in blazing shadow or saddles they're shown as racist and bigoted and you know don't care about anything other than themselves for the most part and they just want to shoot and be rowdy and don't care for the lives of anybody which you know you know, is a parody of the wholesome Westerns, but it does more to expose the true nature or at least that the nature was different from how it was portrayed. And yes, in Blazing Saddles, they say the N-word. Yes, in Blazing Saddles, there are some, you know, areas where uh, maybe they weren't, you know, it, if made today, it wouldn't be the most... Uh, you know, wouldn't it be the most straightforward way to go about it or how somebody would go about it to modern sensibilities. But it's not because the movie itself is racist. It doesn't show a racist message. It's inherently anti-racist. You know, it has a black lead character, which was so, especially for Western, so controversial that the studio begged Mel Brooks to cast a white man because that would be much, much less controversial. But and, the the actor Cleavon Little was central to the argument that the film was trying to make, because by putting a black man, casting him as the role of the sheriff, no longer allows the audience to ignore the racism of the real West. Yeah, they don't... <laughs> They make a joke in it at some point. It's like Gene Wilder's uh, character is like, what did you think that they were going to greet you with open arms and let you, you know, come fuck their daughters and have you in their house for dinner? No, <laughs> um, that's not what they were going to let you do because they were very racist against black people and, you know, many other races as shown in the film. And you know, with a lot of comedies and a lot of pieces of media or culture, it just feels so weird whenever I hear the you couldn't make that today because we when when, you know, a piece of media or culture is created, it's responding to something specific that's happening at the time. We wouldn't make Blazing Saddles today because we are not still living in the era where Westerns are dominant, where the wholesome West, where cowboys are noble, Indians are the enemy, and there's just a few bad apples out there who are making a ruckus. That's not the 
uh, prevailing, prevailing form of media today. So there is no need to lampoon it. If somebody made Blazing Saddles, it'd be like, what are you responding against? This just seems like a farce. A farce of a cowboy movie. In the wake of Blazing Saddles, it spawned a real surgence in the revisionist Western genre, which explicitly tried to say, yes, Blazing Saddles, you were correct. Let's show the West how it actually was. And that is now what we think of as a Western in in modern times. The non-revisionist Western would be seen as a farce today. It'd be seen as so whitewashed and bad and not true to any sort of history that it'd be like, why are we watching this at all? You know, I think of other movies that are, you know, reverent comedies, you know, like Talladega Nights. You know, you wouldn't make Talladega Nights tonight because the rise in ultra patriotic, you know, conservative culture and, you know, in some ways NASCAR don't exist today in the same capacity as they did in like 2003 when it came out. Or at least the cultural understanding and processing of it more critically has shifted since Talladega Nights. Yeah. Um, What's that uh, Leslie Nielsen cop movie? Uh, Naked Gun? Yeah, you wouldn't make the Naked Gun today (laughs) because cop dramas aren't the super dominant form of TV shows. Even if you were to uh, make you know, the naked gun, you know, I feel like West, you know, TV cop shows have gone through a similar thing with Westerns where there's kind of like an old wholesome version of it. And then through the last 10 years or 10 or 20 years, we've gone through like the gritty real anti-hero version of it. So these movies respond to something all culture. I mean, is, I don't know if it's inherently responding to something, but a good deal of it does, especially parodies. So there is you you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today because it just wouldn't make sense. Not because some people said the N word. Yeah, I think you often hear about this. This you couldn't you can't make Blazing Saddles today as some sort of rallying cry against PC culture, the idea that, well, it was just so offensive. They'll never let anything else this offensive ever get through. But we see transgressive media all the time. I mean, if you couldn't make something that was offensive, how would South Park have stayed on the air all these years? I mean, we we are all, I guess, artists, there's always going to be a subset of artists who are going to try to push the boundaries of what's considered acceptable. In the 1970s, it was Mel Brooks. Nowadays, maybe it's Trey Parker and and Matt Stone. But there's not ever been an attempt to clamp down on this art simply because it is bold and transgressive. I mean, hell... (laughs) You know, what precipitated the ability to make Blazing Saddles was the ending of direct censorship. I mean, self-censorship of movies. Um, 
that could yeah, in New Hollywood, the demolition of the Hayes Code, kind of what we talked about on the episode about the Paramount decree. If you'll you'll remember, that's all kind of tied up in that little bit of film history. I, I love talking about that. Yeah, but you know, there there was formerly real censorship of ideas, and now people are upset that maybe some liberals write a blog that says something that they like is bad. And that's censorship. Yeah. Criticism is not censorship. Someone disagreeing with your idea is not infringing upon your idea or your your right to state that idea. And that's something that it feels like a lot of people don't understand. And to be fair, I looked before I came on here and I could not find a blog article of somebody positing that blazing saddles is racist. Now yeah, I didn't look I super mean, hard, but it's not an argument that people are making. It's just a straw man. So it's it's a way to lobby criticism or lodge criticism without interfacing with the real criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, blazing saddles is very anti-racist. I mean, hell, that you know the casting of a a uh, African American lead, like that was so controversial back then, and it would still be controversial today for some people. The lampooning of the kind of nostalgic notion of how the West was that would be seen as very political by the same people who decry the. Uh, you know, the detriment of political correctness. Seeing that the wholesome cowboys are maybe indeed the bad ones. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a good video. I recommend it. I'll link it in the show notes. I definitely recommend you giving it a watch because it's good content. It is. I vouch mm-hmm. for it as well. Do you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I, um, I'm happy with that, that discussion. Blazing Saddles. Uh, recommend that, too, if you guys haven't seen it. Uh, can't really have a link to that, but it's probably streaming somewhere. It is not streaming free anywhere. It's not well, on it. damn. It's, yeah, I know. It's not on any of the services. I purchased it on YouTube. Well, go to your local library. They probably have it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Evan, what's our main topic today? Well, Joe, with election season approaching, the Iowa caucus just a few short weeks away, I wanted to talk about something that should be very important to all our viewers, voting accessibility. But, Evan, what is that? Making sure that people who are legally eligible and entitled to vote, are able to. Why should I care? Well, Joe, despite some valid critiques of direct democracy, which you might get into later, in the system that we have... Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that'll be another episode. Achins and Bartels, good book, uh, Democracy for Realists. But uh, highly recommend. Yeah, good book. But we're not really going to get into that, I suppose. And instead, we have to understand that if 
we want to hold ourselves to the ideal of one person, one vote, that we all have an equal say in shaping this experiment that we call United States democracy. It's important to make sure that we are not leaving people out for any reason. Their voice matters just as much as our own. Yeah. And so (laughs) I want to start with what I believe is a really positive example of institutions striving for voter accessibility. And this was given to me by our longtime listener, Michael M., who lives in Los Angeles and was relaying to me information about voting accessibility pushes within Los Angeles County. Basically, this is the culmination of a 10-year, $100 million initiative to ensure greater voting access for citizens of Los Angeles County. And this is being rolled out, this new initiative, and it was tested back in September with a mock election, and it will be ready and operational by the time that voters make their selections on Super Tuesday. Essentially, the new voting machines are tablet-like devices. People can vote on these tablets. These tablets have the unique advantage from traditional voting machines in that they are much more customizable. So voters can customize the font size, the screen contrast for readability issues, and even the language. They actually come in 13 different language options so that you don't have to request a different ballot. You don't have to read a ballot in English. If that's not the language you're most comfortable with, you can change it right there from the voting machine, which is really valuable for people who might have difficulty reading small type, might have difficulty um, seeing a screen on a traditional machine. So it's attempting to foster better accessibility for a number of different people. These machines are not connected to the internet. They're all individually programmed so that they are not hackable from the outside. Obviously, any election machine can be hacked, but it would require someone actually physically tampering with the machine. They would not be able to steal information online because it won't be connected online. And also important is that After the voter's selection has been made, the machine still prints out a paper ballot that the voter can review. So there will be no ambiguity. It's not like they're just pressing a button and hoping the right response was recorded. They will have physical documentation that proves that their vote was counted as they intended. That's good because it... Because one of the biggest diff- or one of the biggest findings of the modern era is that even though we can create machines for voting to create, I don't know, a little bit more ease of access, ease make it easier to vote, it makes the uh, the prospect of counting those votes a whole lot harder, and it opens up uh, for the possibility of error. Um, system error, not user error specifically, mm-hmm. but it can also open up for user error. So one thing that has come to is that no matter what, really, there should be some sort of paper ballot uh, that is attached to every sort of vote, whether a machine assisted in creating that 
or it's just a straight up paper ballot because then there is at least physically something that exists in the world that says, hey, you voted this way. Yep. And Los Angeles County is embracing that fully with this new system. Another important innovation that they're doing is that voting day is no longer just one day. Instead, they're opening an 11-day voting period during which you can go to basically any polling location within the eligible county and cast your vote. Now, the trade-off here is that they are reducing their number of polling locations by over 75%, but with one quarter of the polling locations and 11 times the amount of time to vote, you still end up with more total hours per location to go ahead and vote. You know, that's an innovation I hadn't thought of. I mean, there are plenty of states that do early voting, and that's an option to people, but there are often, you know, specific rules about how you can qualify to do early voting. I think it should just, you know, Early voting should be available to everybody. Absentee voting should be available to everybody. Um, yeah, just making it easier to vote. Yeah. That's, that's a good thing. Because when there's just one sort of day to vote, that could definitely leave people out, especially people without the meme, without the means to take off time from work or without easy access to transportation. That's why a lot of voting drives often involve just giving people a ride to the polls who might not otherwise have it. And by expanding that voting window, it's extremely unlikely that someone will have to work those exact hours every day for 11 days in a row. And I absolutely agree with Joe that expanding access to early voting and absentee voting is another really important step because then you can do it at your leisure. You don't have to wait for any sort of voting period. They can even deliver election materials to your address by mail, which I have had done for me before, which is very convenient. And in that way, we can make sure that there's fewer and fewer barriers to people actually placing their desires on a ballot. Now, did in anything in these reforms, did they change anything about voter registration? Not in the article that I have read, which could potentially raise its own issues. What do you want to say about voter registration? Because I think that's important. Oh, God, what don't I want to say? Um, I could go on for like 20 minutes, but I'll try and make this as fast as possible. So different countries or different cultures have different attitudes about what voting take, you know, the, the importance voting takes in their society. So in the country of Australia, uh, voting is actually seen as a duty where they view voting as so important that you get fined if you don't vote. Now, in America, I don't think that would be something we go for. We believe it as a right, but, you know, people definitely believe in their right to not vote as a protest. So that's one thing. But but by and large, in the in this country, on paper, at least, we are we have the right to vote. 
But as precedent and kind of history has given or told us and how it's been enacted, voting is more of a privilege or at least treated as such. The way this mainly manifests itself is through having to register to vote. So, I mean, it, it seems kind of arcane because it's kind of like, okay, everybody who's over the age of 18 is allowed to vote as long as they're not a felon or, you know, some other, and they're not a U.S. citizen. That should just be everybody, right? Well, not exactly, and it's not treated as such. You know, in the beginning days of the United States, you had to register to vote because there were only so many people who were qualified to vote. You had to prove that you were qualified to vote. You had to prove that you were landowning and a man and, you know, all the other things that go along with that. Then over the years, we expanded voter access, expanded voter access. Um, And but still this registering to vote thing lingers. And it just seems so arcane to me because like if you register, you know, if you get a driver's license, the government knows where you live and knows whether you're allowed to vote or not. So why shouldn't every state just automatically register you to vote when you change your driver's license? I mean, Illinois does that. They have automatic voter registration, which go Illinois, (laughs) but not every state does that. And it just it seems like in this country, we still treat voter or voting as a privilege because there are plenty of people who argue that, you know, if you want to exercise your right to vote, that you need to go to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, the county courthouse to register to vote, to make sure, you know, to show the extra step that you are enthused to go and vote, not just doing it because that's the hip thing to do, apparently. (laughs) And it just seems so odd to me that you have to prove that you're able to vote when essentially everybody who's over the age of 18 and a citizen of the United States is allowed to vote. I mean, I would be for a system where, you know, everybody's just automatically registered to vote. I could be even be for voter ID laws if they weren't, uh, you know, if, you know, it was easy for everybody to have an ID and it wasn't, you know, used to try and strike people from voter registration rolls. But it just seems arcane to me that you in order to vote, you have to go and tell people prove to people that you're able to vote. And if you don't prove it to people in enough time, then you're not able to vote. Yeah, I I absolutely agree that we need to do more with voter registry. I would be definitely in favor of automatic voter registry. I think that uh, what Joe was talking about in Illinois and other states have this, that's called motor voter registry, where you with the driver's license change. But I think we could go further, have some even more automatic system that doesn't require you to go through a driver's license or at very least same day voter registry would, would help as well. So that as long as which exists in Wisconsin, that's good, which is, which is how I registered to vote in the last election. Good. Yeah. (laughs) You wouldn't think of it. Wisconsin likes their polar tricks and there is also a voter ID law. Um, which, you know, people specific, 
it's seen as a way to get poor black people unable to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and in practice, they have done studies of, you know, who votes and it doesn't seem to actually really affect things all that much, but it does seem like a dirty trick. Like everywhere else, it's just you show up and say your name and then uh, you vote. It only prevents one specific type of voter fraud where you show up and say, you know, if I were to go to the polls and say, hi, I'm Evan Kelly, I would like to vote, please. It only prevents that one type of voter fraud. So, Which we assume is relatively rare, yes? Yes, the Bush administration had done a study on uh, uh, voter fraud and found that over 1 billion votes cast over the period of time that they researched, there were only six counts of fraud. Jeez. (laughs) Wow. So voter fraud is a lot rarer than you think. There was actually a spike in 2016 of a fair number of Trump supporters trying out some fraud because they thought it was real easy and the Mexicans were doing it. So why not uh, they do it to try and make sure Trump wins? Yeah. So, so when you hear about Trump saying about all these votes cast illegally, it's it's a bald faced lie. It's uh, it's pretty bunk. Nobody has ever proved it. If they were able to prove it, I will fully accept it. But it would have to be proved. There would have to be three million <laughs> votes in California made by uh, illegal Mexican or, you know, non-citizen Mexican migrants in California. Oh, man, the people who hate PC are going to hate me for conjuring that phrase up. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, voter fraud is not an issue in the United States. It doesn't mean that we should treat it as a blase issue, but uh, voter ID laws specifically, while I do believe in the at-face value merits of it, the way they are often implemented is to just make it so that certain people can't vote. Yeah. And again, the important part to me is that it's in response to a practically non-existent threat. Um, but I want to yeah. get back to, to something, a point that you made, Joe, because I think it bears um, repeating and, and uh, fleshing out just a little bit more is that the the lack of automatic voter registration or even same day voter registration does seem to impose this burden that says to exercise this right to vote you have to prove in advance that you're worthy or that you really want it and it's it's sort of ridiculous there's not really any other rights that we have that that work that way so it it definitely seems that it it is more about power and preventing certain people from exercising power than it is about anything else. Yeah, it, it's a it's one of those things where we've kind of traditionally had it. So it's like, oh, how could you not do it? But I mean, other countries, they automatically register everybody to vote. You don't have to go through the song of dance of saying, oh, here's where, you know, give the government all this information that you already have. They already have like, oh, I live here. And that's about it. I've <laughs> lived here for a little while. Is that good enough to vote? I mean, most residency requirements to vote is only like 30 days or some shit like that. Mm. Um, One thing that has been very good on voting rights is the, I believe it's the state of Oregon, 
has uh, 100% mail-in ballots. So the way that they do is the state mails a ballot to every person who's eligible to vote. And then the person fills it out, out, out at home or wherever. I mean, they just don't go to a polling station. And then they mail it in by a certain date. And then they count up all the votes. That's awesome. I've never heard about that, but that seems like a really efficient system. Yeah, I I think it could be one way to really increase tur- I mean, and it's also really increased turnout in Oregon. Yeah. Um they have uh, be you know, here's the thing, if you make voting easier, then you will get more people voting. Now, then we get into the whole, you know, swarmy, I'm smarter than everybody else argument of whether, you know, everybody should vote. And I think as kind of a default for this conversation, we're just going to assume that everybody who has the right to vote should vote. We're not going to get into who should have the right to vote or any of that bullshit and what we should be voting on. But if we are going to be allowing people to vote... Everybody who is eligible to vote should be able to vote with as few hurdles as possible. Like I said, in Australia, they see it as a duty. So if you are like bedridden in the hospital, a person will show up with a ballot for you for you to vote. If you, you know, if you have any issue in getting to uh, a polling place to vote, they will make an accommodation for you to ensure that you're able to vote. India has a, um, they have a rule that there has to be a polling place within, you know, however much distance of everybody. So in there, in some of the more rural parts of India, there's a case that they set up an entire polling station for one person to come to. Wow. With a whole bunch of people working there like it was any other polling station. They set up one polling station for one for one resident to come and vote. (laughs) So the idea that you have to work to vote, it just seems weird. And also, you know, like I work odd hours. It's hard for me to get to the courthouse or go do any sort of administrative task. And it's and it's hard. (laughs) You know, imagine if I had kids or, Mm -hmm. you know, anything else going on. It's hard to do. And it just seems like voter registration is a form of gatekeeping for people who are more able to go and take care of things in their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, But all of this is to say that the reforms put in place by Los Angeles County seem to be all steps in the right direction. And I look forward to seeing what type of result we get on Super Tuesday. Yep. Voting. Voting is a, I mean, until we find the next version of government after democracy, it's what we got. Yep. Now, unfortunately, things are not progressing in a positive direction everywhere in the country. And here we've got to turn our negative lens back on Florida. Ah. So this has been in the news recently. Um, Back in 2018, Floridian voters passed Amendment 4, which was a ballot initiative that 
restored voting rights to felons after they had served their time. And this passed within the Floridian. It was, it was a ballot initiative, which means that people could just have an up or down vote on it. And it passed with 65% support. And unfortunately, ever since then, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is a Republican, has tried to undermine the success of this ballot initiative by try he originally tried to force unnecessary verification essentially DeSantis tried to say that if you were a felon and your rights were restored through your voting right was restored through amendment 4 you had to re-register and prove that you were a felon and couldn't vote but now we're out and could vote and this was actually rejected by the Florida Senate under the guise of Bill Gavano, who himself is a Republican too, who said that it was ridiculous that if you were not incarcerated, it was pretty self-evident who would be eligible eligible to vote and who wasn't. But the attacks on Amendment 4 didn't stop there. Another Floridian lawmaker, Republican Dennis Baxley, actually tried to change the threshold that ballot initiatives needed to become law. In Florida, it's 60%. And remember, this one passed with 65%. So Dennis Baxley said, well, I think it should really be a two-thirds majority needs to approve it in order to get it put into law. Tried to raise the bar just one percentage point higher. In an oh, effort. and if, and if they, it had gotten 69% support, it'd be, I think seven-tenths of people need to exactly. support a ballot initiative. Yeah, exactly. So it was a clear move, not done for any constitutional or common sense reason, just an attempt to obstruct the restoration of voting rights that the Floridian people thought was in their best interest. But in 2019, Governor DeSantis signed State Bill 7066, which means that the voting rights to the felons are only restored in the event that they have no outstanding fines or fees still owed through their legal system. And this was challenged in court, with it, and it went all the way to the Florida Supreme Court, and this past week they upheld this law that says that even though their voting rights are restored, they still can't vote if they have outstanding fines and fees. And this has been criticized as tantamount to a poll tax. Now, poll taxes are an archaic way of stopping mostly poor people and often people of color from voting by requiring some monetary contribution before you were allowed to vote. And it was purely a way to stop people from voting if they didn't have enough funds. And this is essentially, I think, very similar because it's not saying that your felony status or your status as a felon prevents you from voting, but your inability to pay fines and fees stops you from being able to vote. So the condition of voting is contingent upon your financial status, which to me feels horribly wrong and unjustifiable. There's there's a base logic that, yeah, you know, we want these people to pay off their debts, but in practice, it really seems 
unnecessarily exclusionary and violates this principle that that we are operating under that anyone who can vote should vote with few barriers. Yeah, I bet that's going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in other news, I'm going to propose a statewide referendum that people who haven't paid parking tickets shouldn't be allowed to vote. Sure. Or library fines, you know, like what the 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 logical extension of this policy makes no sense. I mean, tax fraud still get to vote. Yeah. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And. the, the thing is that it's it's again undergirded by this presumption that your right to vote is not a right. Governor DeSantis himself on Twitter said that he was happy that the Supreme Court affirmed the privilege of voting, that somehow your enshrined right to vote and have a say in your democracy and your governance can be earned or taken away is just wholeheartedly wrong to me. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, this is what I was saying. You know, we. Th- this is one of those places where there is the disconnect between what Americans say about themselves and how they actually practice it. And uh, it just... We treat... We, we indoctrinate in our kids as they're growing up, going through civics class, that... Voting is a right. Everyone talks about how much of a right voting is. You need to exercise your right. People admonish other people for not voting. It's seen as tantamount to the American experience. But then through our bureaucracy and through our rules, we treat it as a privilege. Only to be deigned upon those who jump through the appropriate hoops. And I think there should be a lot fewer hoops. I agree. I absolutely agree. Because it's really important when we talk about justice to have everyone at the table. How can we ensure – and again, this is the premise of democracy is that if everyone has a seat in the table and a voice – this is the best way to protect protect everyone's rights and interests. But if we don't have – ex-felons who are able to vote, how can we ensure that our justice system isn't unnecessarily punitive if those people who would be affected most don't have a say in that representation? How can we make sure that our government is representing the interests of the most marginalized people in our society if those people do not form a voting block that has to be catered to? We cannot have the democracy as it is ideally presented and as it's mythologized without ensuring voting access. Uh, You know, unless we want to fundamentally change how voting works and who votes and all that stuff, we all have the right to vote. We all have the, you know, right to have a say, just a little say. And then people work so hard to take that away from people or to change the rules to change it. It's almost like a, a Nathan for you bit, right? We say that you have the right to vote, but then make it extraordinarily difficult to exercise that. It's like when he offers the big gas rebate, he offers a special price for gas, but only with a rebate. And then he says that it's not a mail-in rebate. And in order to 
access the rebate, you have to hand deliver your rebate form. And he puts that form, the, 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 the receiving box for that form on the top of a mountain. Technically, <laughs> technically they still have the right to climb that mountain and drop off the rebate form. And some people try, but it, it, it doesn't work to? out. And, you know, should our, democratic institutions resemble the comedic stylings of Nathan Fielder who's doing it as a bit? No. Yeah. Yeah, no. <sighs> well, this is uh earlier in the podcast I decried governmental solutions for this, but this is uh wholly in the realm of governmental solutions. Yeah, cuz so. it's a government actor. Um, but even when we do talk about the governmental solutions which are needed, I do want to bring our listeners' attention to something that's being done on the grassroots level to try to bridge the gap while we await structural change. And that is the work of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. And right now, this organization, which you can find on the internet if you are so inclined, they are collecting money which will be used to pay off fines and fees for felons who should be able to vote under Amendment 4, who otherwise will not be able to. So if that is a way where you are able to help and interested in helping, that organization, again, is the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Yeah, that is a a good positive thing. And I think that may be a good place to end it. We don't have an end segment today. Would you uh, agree that's an okay place to end it, Evan? Yeah, I'm pleased with it. Yeah. So rights are being taken away from people, but there are people who are working against it. So help those people. And anyway, this has been the Adequately Informed Podcast. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. We'd also ask you to take a moment and rate us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out a lot. Share us with your friends. Do all the above. Listen, listen, listen. Bye, bye. Oh, I'm sorry. But anyway. (laughs) Don't forget to like and subscribe. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.